Hello, and welcome to the Trauma-Informed Podcast with your host, Jeff Friedman. On today's episode, we have Lauren Brill. Lauren Brill is a... Um, uh, sexual assault survivor and the uh, the creator of a, uh, a media outlet called The Unsealed. She has experience as a journalist and um, check in to hear her story. I telling a little bit about the story and how you how, how you ended up, how you created The Unsealed and what, what led you to that? Yeah. So when I was in high school, when I was 16 years old, I went to a party with two of my best friends and some guys from another school showed up. And they offered my friends and I drinks and we accepted. And all of us only remember having one drink. And that night I was sexually assaulted by two boys that I did not know. I lost consciousness for part of the assault. I don't really remember. I don't remember from the point to the drink until I woke up on a bed with two boys I did not know in a dark room. And I lost all muscle control. And I, I believe that they left the room because I fell off the bed and I don't think they were sure that if I was alive or not. I mean, I think that's what saved me. They didn't finish the assault. So I think that's why. I think they either they were nervous someone would hear the thump and come up. But I know in that moment, I had thought they died. I had thought that they thought I died because they ran out of the room in such a panic. And for years, I didn't tell anyone. I, I had a lot of, you know, I was 16, so I wasn't supposed to be drinking. So I didn't want to tell my parents that I had a drink. I was embarrassed. There was two guys in me and that, you know, I, I didn't want people to think that I was promiscuous and it come back in a way that made me look bad. Um, and the other element that I don't think a lot of people talk about when it comes to sexual assault is women do get aroused during se- sexual assault. So there was some sort of self-blame and self-hate for my body reacting in a way that it did and me feeling like, well, I, like, did I ask for this? There was a lot of questions surrounding that and I didn't really understand it at the time. And I think that for me, it was a really, really difficult thing to process. And it was a really difficult thing to even put a name to what happened. It was hard to say I was sexually assaulted or I was raped. I didn't really say that for years. And for nine years, I I told very few people. I think I told one person when I was 19. But other than that, I really didn't tell anybody until I was 24. The person you told when you were 19? To be honest, I don't remember telling him, but he reminded me recently that I told him, and it was actually a boss at work. He started introducing me to storytelling, and one of the first stories he asked me to do was violence against women. So it was very triggering because it was all these stories about athletes who had committed assault and and some sort of violent act against women. And so I think he said one day I told him. So I I vaguely remember telling him, and I only remember because I remember he said told me he had a girlfriend that it happened to. But I really, really don't have a memory of like sitting down and telling him. But I, but I remember the story. I remember, I remember him telling me that his girlfriend was assaulted. So it's, it's very, and he knew the story. So like, it's very. I obviously did tell him, and I just don't really remember. But I didn't really start talking about it. I, I do remember also telling my fiance that I thought something really terrible happened, and not really going into too much detail, but. It was almost like I was like coming to terms with what happened over time. And I didn't really tell anyone like the whole story until I was 24. And the first person that I really, that really kind of pushed it out of me was like, was a guy that I was, that I used to kind of date for on and off for a long time. And we had a very like, I don't know how to explain our relationship, like love, hate relationship. And he liked to poke my buttons. 
And so mm-hmm. he kept asking me why I didn't drink and why and why I had a very a- averse reaction to alcohol. So if somebody said, do you want to drink? I'd be like, no. And it was just like very blatant that it wasn't like, eh, no, I'm not, I don't want any. It was, it, there was a very, like a reaction to alcohol. So he wanted to know what happened and he was pushing me and finally it just came out. And when it came out, I was, I think I was 24 and I was 16. So 24, no, I was 25. So I was 25. So it was nine years. And then I just, I told my mom and then it took me another year to tell my dad. And during that like 25, 26 year old time period, there was a lot of like acceptance. There was still a lot of embarrassment and shame. I didn't want, like I told another boyfriend and I didn't want him to tell anyone and he told someone and I was upset. So I really wasn't like public about it. And I was really still coming to terms with it myself. But in 2017, by by my 30s, I really had a lot of acceptance. I also started telling more friends. And every time I told a friend, everyone else had a story. Everyone's like, well, this is what happened to me. It seemed like we were all holding on to the same secret. And I'm like, what is going on here? Was that was that before? The, I'm assuming it was before the Me Too. Is yeah, that kind of yeah. like a Me like, Too I kind of thing? Like, I experienced Me Too years before Me Too happened. And then 2017, about six months before the Me Too movement, I decided to write an open letter to sexual assault survivors. And it came about in a couple ways. It was kind of building, but I did a story on a woman who was abused by her boyfriend and she initially didn't want to do the story. And then she changed her mind and called me. And I asked her why she changed her mind. And she said, it's the silence of victims that allow predators to continue their predatory behavior. So that was echoing in my head. And then someone connected me with Cheryl Sandberg, the um, C, I think she's the CFO of Facebook. And she, uh, I think COO, but yeah, same. Okay. COO yeah. of Facebook. So she was doing, she was doing like a, a website community thing for her book option B about people who have overcome adversity. And we had a mutual friend who was in her book actually. And he introduced us and she said, why don't you do something for, Option B, like no pressure, but I'd love to have you on there. You would be a great example for women. And I couldn't say no to her, but there were a lot of parameters into what she, into how she wanted it done. And they had writers and I'm a writer. So I did it for her. But then I also wrote this letter on my website, an open letter to sexual assault survivors. And I really got to say everything I wanted to say. I wrote it in my, like I wrote it myself and it was really my words. And I was able to do it exactly how I wanted to do it. I had full control. Well, who who is the sorry about that? Who's the uh, mutual friend with Sheryl Sandberg? His name's Vernon Turner. He is actually he. They're actually making a movie on his life right now. He's a former football player, and he his he he's the byproduct of rape. His m- mom was raped, gang raped, walking home from school one day, and that's how he she he was conceived. And he, he ended up losing his mom to drug addiction, but he was just like a very determined person. And he got himself a scholarship and he made got himself to the NFL. And it's just like this incredible story of resilience. And I read his story on Players Tribune. They, Players Tribune wrote a beautiful piece about his life. And there was a part in there that said, you know, I don't understand why my mom felt this or did that or had this emotion. And there were just elements of, the things that he would like of his story that he had unanswered that I like felt like I had answers to. So I had reached out to him after, after I read his story and I just said like, this is, this is how I felt. And I understand why your mom like reacted this way or I understand that. And I tried to give him like insight into how I felt and to, to give him more insight into how his mom felt. And we've been friends ever since. So, and he, he knew, he knew Cheryl. So yeah, that was, I don't know. That, that had to be before 2017, but I think I knew Vernon for like maybe a year before that. 
so yeah, so that was that was the mutual friend. And when I wrote this letter on my website, uh, I, I ended up publishing it on my station's website. I was a sportscaster for ABC in Cleveland. And it went viral around the country. I mean, I had people from all over the country reaching out to me about this letter. And it was so empowering. And it was a release. And I felt like I was living with this skeleton in my closet, only that it wasn't my skeleton. I didn't do anything wrong. And when I wrote this letter, I was able to like put that skeleton back where it belonged. I was able to throw it back into the universe and say like, this is not my secret. This is not my, I didn't do anything wrong. And like, here, you have it back. That's how it felt. And it just, seeing people's reaction and just having, seeing how I felt to, about it. And even reading just the story, I thought it was one of the better things I had written, made me feel like I had something really special. And I was really passionate about social advocacy and telling stories that really have enlighten people and empower people and stories that make people think and feel. And I thought, how cool would it be if I could help other people express their stories and their truth the way I'm able to, if I can do it through the written word and I can tell a story, but what if I helped other people? So I started, decided to start this website called the unsealed where we where, where we, I say we, but it's I <laughs> uh, help people write their stories in the forms of open letters. And we do all types of stories from all different types of people and some are inspirational some reflect uh, social issues and it's meant to give people a voice it's meant to empower people it's meant to inspire people and both the, for to empower and inspire not only the people reading it but also the person writing it and the person whose voice the story is from and in a short amount of time we've had a lot of success we've reached over 180 countries we've had a quarter million hits in just about 70 stories wow. we've been referenced in every single major outlet from people magazine to e to new york post san francisco chronicle espn the list goes on and on and it's it's been incredibly fulfilling and incredibly empowering and yeah and i think that my sexual assault actually made me capable of this. I think what I tell young girls, because I also speak at high schools, is that when you go through something really difficult, especially like sexual assault, and then you come out on the other side of that, you get this gift of getting to live your rest of your life knowing exactly how strong you are, right? Like I know that I went through something really, really hard and I still achieved my dream to become a sportscaster. I still went to an Ivy League school. I, I am happy person and I live my life and I I can I don't know I just feel like I, I I know my strength and it's a really powerful way to go through life knowing that you're strong and you can overcome a lot and you can handle a lot so well, it's so given me the courage to start a company and to empower people because I know that I'm a strong person all right Lauren so you so you, you sent me the message on Facebook about uh, post-traumatic growth yeah uh, so, so yeah, tell me your tell thoughts me about your thoughts about that. Well, I always wonder, like I've done a lot of reading about sexual assault survivors and some of them are suicidal and some of them are depressed and like some of them have a lot of very serious ramifications. And sometimes I'm like, how come I don't have that? Or how come I'm okay and other people aren't okay? How come I feel so empowered by this? And not to say it was perfect. I did have a time period where I struggled to eat. I did have a time period where I was very anxious and very scared all the time. And those are really my two two biggest symptoms was I, I exhibited a lot of fear and I was so anxious walking around even just my college campus by myself. And I also, I struggled to eat for a while until I, I talked to my parents about what happened. And as soon as I talked to my parents, my stomach felt 
better. So I had like an anxiety built up. But other than that, I mean, I just don't seem to have these severe, and maybe I don't recognize them. I don't know, but I don't, I'm a happy person. And I feel almost like, why am I okay? And other people aren't. And so like, I started looking into post-traumatic growth. And I also feel really empowered by everything. And it just fascinates me. And I sometimes I think that the worst thing had ever happened to me turned out to bring out the best in me. And I just am fascinated and curious if that's normal and wondering why it uh, manifested that way in me and not everybody and how I can uh, help other people so that it, they can turn their, their troubles into their strength. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, one thing about about it is like touching on that this topic is that I think if you look at a lot of the data that most people are resilient or resilient and sort of the difference between resilience and post-traumatic growth is resilience is kind of like that people have, you have trauma and then you are, are stretched kind of like a rubber band and you sort of return back to basically your, 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 yourself pre-trauma, whereas Post-traumatic growth is more the idea that trauma sort of like sort of shatters your whole sense of self, sense of reality, and that you're able to sort of build this sort of new self that that may be you know more spiritual, maybe more creative and stuff before the trauma happened. And yeah, and and I think if you look at it from like from a distribution standpoint, that like. Maybe uh, 25% of the people that experience trauma or even maybe a little bit less, 10%, something like that, get PTSD. And on the other other end of that, that somewhere around the same, a smaller percentage get the post-traumatic growth, exhibit post-traumatic growth. And I mean, some of the factors uh, I think that contribute to this kind of stuff is, yeah, if somebody, it also draws on how the person was before the, the trauma happened, what kind of, whether they're an optimistic person, whether they have a lot of social support in their life. That's what uh, I Because I did that? have all those things. I did yeah. have all those things. I had I have really great parents. I was very social, had a lot of friends, and I've always been an upbeat, positive person. Right. So, and then what are some other things? Yeah, like, I mean, for example, like when you think about military veterans that, that develop PTSD, I mean, the war obviously is, tr- is terribly traumatic experiencing war, but a lot of the people that really get bad PTSD, it's not even so much and the war itself, it could be a trigger for their uh, rough childhood and so forth. I mean, that kind of stuff. So some of it is also just your situation that you had before the trauma and how that sure. got to- together. Yeah, I mean, there's so many factors. It's also, I mean, there's definitely a genetic component. Some people are just are more resistant to stress than others. And like, th- this is like a fascinating example of, of the trauma kind of stuff is that one of the one of the 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 like sort of uh, biological markers for a PTSD is contrary to you might not think initially is actually low cortisol, and uh, you you probably have heard of cortisol as yeah, like yeah the stress the, hormone yeah and and then yeah so that 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 can be a a marker for for PTSD actually having low low cortisol and the way 
the way I understand that is that sort of the, the, the cortisol system is just sort of was under threat so much that it kind of goes into over overload and then it just is, doesn't produce as much as, as, a, as a regular sort of an average level of cortisol. And But it's still within the normal range, meaning that it it's not low enough that somebody has a real like endocrine disorder. And then anyway, th- this is one of the, the real fascinating findings with this is that uh, there's a psychologist named Rachel Yehuda who's in New York at, at Mount Sinai. And she, she studied like second and third generation Holocaust survivors and found that they, they exhibited that low cortisol, like even several generations from, you know, having experienced the Holocaust. But well, but but I I asked my mom about this and of all my my parents and all my grandparents nobody ha- has ever had depression or been uh, on antidepressants or uh, any any mental illness and so I was always wondered if that played a role too in the fact that like there's just there's just no there's no known mental illness in my in, in the bloodlines that I know of wow okay yeah no I think it definitely played a role sure. What about any any problems in the in the in the family with any kind of like drinking or drug use? Not that I. My grandmother smoked cigarettes. Uh-huh. My grandfather smoked before I was born, but he quit. My grandmother was addicted to cigarettes, so she she didn't stop smoking until right before she died. But right. no alcoholism. Uh, my mom doesn't really drink at all. My dad, growing up, they never drank in front of us at all. My dad, I mean, my dad, my mom never drank at all. But my dad wouldn't even drink in front of us, and even now, like he'll have a you know, nobody's really, my brother doesn't drink. I don't drink. Nobody's really big drinkers. We never grew up around like drinking and partying and my dad will have a drink here and there, but yeah, no, drinking is not really a thing in my family. either. Well, actually circling back to post-traumatic growth, I mean, this other concept that isn't, isn't as widely talked about that, that I find it's a really cool concept, psychological concept as a response to trauma is called altruism born out of suffering. And it's basically this idea that after experience like a, a traumatic event, such as like the sexual assault, that the survivor actually becomes much more. Well, one of the one of the ideas is that the experience of uh, of trauma can make you more uh, empathetic. And uh, yeah, so can you speak about that? How, how do you? See? Well, I think what I actually have written before, and sometimes it's weird when I write, it almost taps into a subconscious part of my brain. So sometimes I understand my own thinking more when I read what my own writing, which is really interesting. But what I've written for is that you know. And it's in my actual newsletter when when you sign up for the unsealed. After I was assaulted, I started to really question the world around me because I grew up in such a, a very comfortable bubble where right was white, right, wrong was wrong, and you know, women. I got you know, as a woman, I got the same as my brother. Like all this inequality that exists in society, I didn't really see. I just didn't see anything. Everything was you know fair. I live every. I was I was living in a very fair, great world, and all of a sudden, I questioned all that. I questioned the world around me. And then I started to become more aware of all the sexism and how sexism contributes to sexual assault. I became more aware of racism and how it completely infiltrates our society and affects people. And I became more aware of the hate in the LGBTQ community. And I became very much an advocate for all those issues. To me, they're they're all the same thing. I agree. I, I agree with that. They are definitely connected. And, you know, I always say like they're cousins and they're last, they share the same last name, inequality. So, yeah. So I think that it became, I stopped taking the world for, for what, 
for what was for me, right? Like I had a pretty good life. I went to private school. I had two parents. Like my, my life was, was, was go pretty good. I stopped only seeing the world through my little bubble and it forced me out of that bubble to see the imperfections in the world and also take a stand for them. And it made me right. really passionate about taking a stand for right and wrong because I realized that if I don't take a stand and I don't speak up, well, who's going to do it? And if I don't do it, then you're going to have more assaults and more abuse and more violence. And it just, the cycle is going to continue. So it, it, it really turned me into an advocate and not just an advocate for myself, but for all wrongs that I could, could see in, in, in my, or I could find in, in plain sight. And I, I remember seeing something on, I think on your, the letter about rain. And I, I've heard from other people, the other sexual violence survivors, that it's a, a good organization. Are you involved oh, right. with them at all? So, no, I've never done anything with them. I've just, I probably donated to them before, maybe even through my site. But I used to go on Rain and look at all the the symptoms for sexual assault survivors. And I would, to myself, kind of check off to make sure I didn't have any those symptoms anymore. Like, I really okay. was cognizant about the symptoms and making sure that I did what I could to overcome them. And my biggest thing again was fear. And I still have that a little bit. I'm not, I'm not walking out at night with my dog by myself, a lot of places. Like I'm, I don't, I, I'm careful, but I was anxious to the point of it being debilitating when I was younger. Like I didn't want to do things. I couldn't go places. I would have heart palpitations from walking from my car to my door of my apartment. So it was, it was much more intense. And one of the things that really helped me is having these dreams, like to be an ambitions to be a sportscaster and to do all these things that I wanted to do. And I realized if I want to be a sportscaster, I got to figure out how to get from the arena to my car and my car to the arena at night because the games are at night. Otherwise, I can't be a sportscaster. And so really pushing myself outside of my comfort zone so to be able to do the things I wanted to do really forced me to deal with some of the negative symptoms of the assault. All right, cool. I mean, one, one, going back to one of the things you said earlier about Sheryl Sandberg, I, I mean, I read Option B too, and I, I, saw her, I saw her speak in Miami when she was doing her book tour, but it, it was so packed. I, I, had to, like, I had to be in like a separate room anyway, but, but I actually know her, her parents, that they go to the synagogue that my mom goes to North they're Miami Beach. Yeah. yeah. Do you know about, you know that? You know their, no, their I know parents? they're from uh, here. That's funny. Yeah. North, yeah. She grew up in North Miami Beach actually, but. Yeah, and her parents are amazing people as well. Her, her father is a uh, very nice guy, ophthalmologist, and, and her mother too is a great person. But and yeah, so where 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 do you see where is the unsealed now today, and where do you see it going? Yeah, so we've again been done about seventy letters, quarter million hits, hundred more than one hundred and eighty countries. I'm developing more video and kind of trying to develop a show within the video and seeing where that takes me trying to push the envelope with topics. We did a topic, dear white mothers from a black mom, basically pleading to white moms to talk to their kids about racism and really identifying the different experiences black moms have compared to white moms in terms of worrying about their kids' safety, especially young black men or the safety of young black men. And so really just pushing the envelope with storytelling, pushing the envelope with, with forcing, not forcing, but, catalyzing these conversations that need to be had and that maybe make some people nervous or uncomfortable or put them outside of something that they would normally talk about. So really just challenging the world 
to think a little differently and see other perspectives and hopefully create change in the world. And I was doing public speaking before that. So I hope eventually I can get back before the coronavirus. And I hope eventually after the coronavirus passes through, uh, hopefully it does sooner rather than later, I can get back to public speaking and reaching out to people one-on-one. And where have, uh, where have you done the public speaking? A lot of schools in New York, high schools. Uh, I did one middle school in New York and I was supposed to do one college, but I, but it got canceled. Okay. So all in New York, I would love to do some down here. I just don't have the same connections. Yeah, the the Lotus House is a good place. Have you have you heard of them? Mm-mm. They're uh, well, they're a women's shelter in Miami, and I, I mean I've heard that they do good 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 stuff. They do a lot of stuff around um, sexual assault, sexual violence. Yeah, no, I would love to. I would love to do more involved on here. And so given the, how, how has everything been with you during the, the coronavirus? It's great. Uh, I've actually gotten more business. Uh, uh-huh. And I joke it like, it's, I'm actually a little bit concerned that this quarantining is so easy for me because it's what I was doing anyway. I was homework. And so yeah. the quarantining isn't that hard. It's not really that big of a life adjustment. Other than that, I can't hang out with friends. Right. Uh, but I have friends come and take walks. So it really hasn't been... You know, the biggest thing for me is when am I going to see my parents? Yeah. How, how are they? Uh, how have they been doing? They're holding up okay. They're in New York. My brother's in New York. So everyone's in that New York area. My, technically, my parents are in, technically my parents are in Jersey, but, you know, they're in that hot spot area. So there's a lot of concern around them. But outside of that, you know, me being home working isn't that really a big deal for me. I work out every day, which I, working out has really been great for me too. I think working out is very, very healing. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and going back to one of your, your earlier points, I really liked, and it, it's been some of my experience with researching this topic too, about how that seeing those connections, how you were saying between the racism and, and uh, all these different kind of oppressions, how they're all connected. And I mean, I think that's one of like, uh, in, in a weird kind of way, I mean, it's obviously like having things like the sexual violence, it's not a good thing, but, but it, it does like, like, I mean, like you can't make yourself not white, but, 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 but being that you've had this kind of experience, I mean, how do I, that's, that's really where I was going with, I meant to say like, it just, it's just something that's, it's sort of like this kind of trauma is kind of colorblind. It doesn't really see race, gender, or like sexual orientation that it really happens to everybody. That's the point I was trying to make with it. Sorry, what was the question? No, it wasn't a question. It was more just a statement saying about how that this kind of these types of experience, like the sexual assault, that it affects people, you know, every different sexual orientation, every different race, every different. It just, yeah. You know, I I don't I tell every guy that I date that about my assault, and I I almost think it's just for me. I tell them because I think it's important to know, for them to know that. I have a, a, that in my past and my, ba- if I say no, it means no, that right. my boundaries are not flexible. Right. <laughs> like no, doesn't mean ask me five more times. And I think giving them the context of my past, it makes it, 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 it I think it's, it's fair, more fair to them to have that information as they proceed. But it, it helps me, I think them understand my boundaries. And so I think that I do, I do tell people, and I think that it's, it's kind of more fair to them to tell them. Um, right. 
Well, what about, what about, do you, have you found that, I mean, I've thought about this in, in context of what you're talking about, that if yeah, judging by how, like, after you tell um, guys this, like, it can, it's in a way, you know, I mean, it, it, you know, I think it could be sort of a good test to see what kind of a person they are, how they deal with the information. If they're really, uh... Yeah, I'm trying to think if I ever really had a reaction that was, I mean, there, there, I really haven't had a bad reaction. Like nobody's ever said anything super, usually people are upset. Usually it bothers them that that right. happened. Yeah. One person asked me, so like, what does that mean? Like, how are you affected? And I like, I like didn't even know how to answer the questions. I'm like, well, now I'm not, I'm sure I'm affected in, in ways, but like in terms of a, like him, I'm like, he, he was kind of like, well, why do I need to know this? <laughs> like, what, what's, what's the value behind it? And he wasn't saying it in a mean way. He's just like, okay, well, what does that translate to? Like, do you not have sex? Do you not this? Or like, what does that mean? I was like, no, it just, I just think you should know. And I said, the only thing I, for me is I get very, scared you know walking alone at night so if you could always walk me alone at night just be a little bit and things like that but like I didn't really have an answer for him I was just kind of like I just think you should know I don't really have like oh my gosh I can't do this or I can't do that there weren't a lot of you know bullet points to go with to go with it and but yeah I mean most people respond kindly most people are respectful I think sometimes people get nervous when you tell them you were assaulted or raped or whatever, because I think they're going to nervous. Like, Oh, you're going to say that you, that you, if they don't know you well, are you going to say that that happened with us or something? So right. I think that's something that like men are a little bit weary of if they don't know you very well, but I really have never, I haven't really had an issue with a guy like not being respectful or not being, I, I really can't think of an instance that sticks out of my head where I told someone they reacted in a way that upset me in any way. At least not that I can think of offhand. I just always tell people, and it's never, it's never really been that big of a. I don't know. It's never, it's never really changed the course of the situation. Yeah, well, I'm getting a little bit pressed for time, but but I don't want to. This might it could go in a different direction, but something that that has struck me is that there's some more famous examples of this, but but I'll go with more of a. You probably I don't know if you came here fairly recently you probably wouldn't have heard of this guy but um but anyway i'll just tell you the story real quickly that there's this uh, there was a well-known yoga teacher in del rey and he he was about 50 or maybe at the time he was in his late 40s and he was had this accusation of one of his students was like 16 and there were these charges pressed against him that he was having sex with the student and smoking pot with her and he was like yeah 48 uh, i believe and she was 16. Anyway, but he he ended up just going to getting on like house arrest, and uh, I just thought it was like very too uh, light of a pretty. He got off fairly easy from this, and I don't think uh, for a long time people took these things very seriously, and it was always just like you know tell the girl to be quiet and move on with her life. I actually didn't mention this, and I, I I'm not uh -huh. super public about this story, yeah. but uh -huh. when I was 14, we had a a guy who built our house. He was going to do our basement for free. He right. was about, I don't know. I, 45, 50, I was 14. He came to our house and he like, he didn't, he didn't touch me in any way. There was nothing. I mean, maybe he put his hands on my shoulders, but like right. he didn't, there was no sexual assault that occurred, but he like came on to me, started asking me very sexual questions and it was in my house and it made me very nervous. And you know, at 14 years old, you're still a kid. 
Right. Still have this mindset of like, well, this is an adult. I have to be polite. But he's literally asking me, you know, have you ever had oral sex before? And not that way. And can I, I had my own phone line. So I had a phone that was my parents' phone line and my phone line sitting right. sit next to each other. And he was like, can I have the phone number for your phone line? And I was right. kind of like, why? <laughs> you know, that's weird for a grown man. And I remember I, for the most part, I was polite to him. And after that, I remember saying to myself that nobody – Nobody is just deserves your respect and your you, people earn your respect. And if someone does something that's disrespectful or unkind or is is worthy of you saying something, you say something. So after that, I'm very outspoken and I'm very I don't care if it's my boss, I don't care if it's the president, I don't care if it's the most famous person in the world. If you do something to me that's disrespectful, I'll say something. Like I don't hold back and I think for me, a lot of these situations that were that could have been really disastrous have turned into like beautiful, empowering lessons. Yeah, no, it's, that, that, that's interesting. And uh, yeah, where I was going with my story is just that anyway, I, I, I was with a friend in Delray and she had another friend that was a yoga teacher. I knew this guy was a big yoga teacher. I just happened to know, ask her if she knew this guy. And she said, oh, yeah, that he was her teacher and, and so forth. And, and and I was telling her my feelings that I just thought it was pretty messed up that, that he got off so easy off this charge. And she was like, oh, well, I, I actually feel bad for him that, you know, ruined his life. And it's so like bad for his family. And it's just how even especially I have a hard time believe, seeing how like like yeah, other women like defend people like this, which uh, sort of boggles my mind. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't defend it. I also think that when I was a kid, I had thought if I had spoken up about my assault, people would do something. Like I didn't realize at the time how women weren't believed and how I don't know. I think that I always thought that if I said something, right. like, they would get in trouble. And when I realized that that if I had said something, it probably like wouldn't have gone anywhere. Sometimes I think for some women, that's more traumatic than the actual assault. That nobody cares that they're assaulted. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that's that's sort of like it happens and that's, oh, that's another actually thing. Now that you, it's good that you brought that up because that's also a big determining, one of the determining factors, whether somebody does well after trauma, like if, yeah, if after they experience the, the, the trauma and then they seek support and then there's sort of a short window of time if when they're seeking support and stuff, if the people are sort of, uh, kind and offer helpful things that that can be very can be a turning point whether the person does well then but if they're like if they're sort of like victim blamed or they're saying well maybe you brought it on and uh just forget about it that can make things a lot worse nobody ever said oh it didn't happen so i think i think had i accused you know mrs jones's son then maybe, or Johnny Football, or whoever, I shouldn't say Johnny Football, because that's actually a person, but whoever, if I accused actually someone that people knew, your, your friend, your cousin, your, your teammate, I think it would have been a lot different, but because I know, and the only thing we did know about them is that they robbed the house they were at, they drugged my friends too, and nobody at this party actually even knew who these kids were. So they actually robbed the house, they stole two or three things from the house. Um, including the rooms that I, the room I was in and the room my friends were in. So nobody were like, oh no, these guys wouldn't do it. Like no one had the impression that the guys that were upstanding citizens. So, um, so I never had the situation. Nobody has ever once said, I don't believe you. I've never had anyone ever say that to me, not, 
nobody. Right. I mean, the only thing that I was really hurt by is when I did come out with my story. For me, that was my way of fighting back. That was my way of healing. That was my way of saying, you didn't get the best of me. And my family, a lot of, not my, not my close family, not my you know parents or anything, right. but like cousins and aunts and uncles didn't share the story on their social media. And it really hurt me because I felt like I never asked anybody for anything. I never asked for a shoulder to cry on from anybody except maybe my mom. I never asked anybody to help me. I never asked for therapy. Like I never asked for anything from anybody in terms of coping with my assault. I coped with it on my own with the exception of my mom. And that was only years later. And that was the only thing I've ever asked of people to show their support was to share this letter that I wrote and get my message out there. And why I was told by my cousins and stuff and, and my aunts that they weren't comfortable. It was an uncomfortable topic. And I was kind of like, well, imagine how uncomfortable it was for me to be assaulted, you know? And so I, Yeah, no, well, just let me just interject a little bit there. That that reminds me a little bit. There's this there's a psychiatric researcher named Charles Nemiroff that he used to be at the University of Miami, but now I'm not sure where he is. But prior to the University of Miami, he did a lot of work around uh, child abuse and sexual abuse in Emory, like by Atlanta. And I remember, I remember him saying kind of what you're describing yeah. I mean, about and, how and like I mean, my parents have he said he would like present some of his uh, research at like country clubs in Atlanta or places have, in Atlanta, and the people are very they're just very squeamish about it. They, yeah, they, they, it goes on, but nobody talks about it. Shared my letter. They've supported me in speaking out. They've they've come to schools with me, listened to me tell the story of what happened to me over and over as I speak at these schools. I mean, I have two the two most amazing parents in the world. But, it, you know, an extended family who grew up with you, just when you say, hey, this is what I need. This is what would really mean the world to me. And they say, ah, it's, it's not for me. Th- that stings. It really, really stung because of how much the situation affected me and how much it didn't matter to them. Or to me, I perceived it didn't matter. Because to me, that was all I asked you to do was share my story and get my message out, get my story out. And it just doesn't take very much. So for me, that was, that was I mean that changed my relationship with them forever. And I don't mind saying that publicly. I don't, it, it is what it is, you know, it just is yeah. what it is. And, and I've, yeah. and I've gotten closer to some people. Some friends have been so supportive. I remember people that I wasn't close to who reached out to me and, and commented on the letter and share, share the letter. It just meant that much to me. And it, that's why I'm doing the unsealed because I know how much speaking up and sharing my story meant to me. And I know that everyone right. has a story and it means something to other people. But for me, that was, I think the hardest thing for, for me post-assault and years later after I kind of got over the symptoms was coming to terms with the people that I thought cared about me weren't there for me at all in the way I needed them, and I didn't think I was asking for much. Right, no, that's tough. Well, anyway, Lauren, thanks a lot for uh, speaking with me today. No I enjoyed uh, uh, listening and uh, speaking with you today about and learning more about your uh, 
your life in the unsealed okay. and um, I'm one. looking forward to seeing what you're doing in the future and uh, hope you hope you stay safe during this crazy COVID-19 reality we're in. All right. Um, all the best. Have a nice day. Bye.